This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. On this week's show, it's our 2022 rap party recorded live at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Our favorite movie moments of 2022, the funniest and most moving, plus the best music moments and our scenes of the year. With special guests Griffin Newman from the Blank Check podcast, Dana Stevens from Slate, Allison Wilmore from Vulture, and Matt Singer from Screen Crush. That's ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last weekend, we did make the trek to Brooklyn to record our very first New York area live show, our 2022 rap party. As you'll hear, it was worth the wait. A great venue, Josh, an incredible crowd. And I hate to throw any shade at our Chicago listeners and all the live shows we've done here over the years, but there just was something special about this one. Yeah, we've had we've had great crowds every time we've done a live show. I wonder if it's just a pent up energy from the yeah. delay. It had to be that had to be part of it. Uh, and I think you're right about the venue as well. It was the Bell House is it's got shall we say like a little ramshackle vibe that took the pressure off at least for me. It felt very comfortable. The seats were close to a low stage, mm-hmm. and it was more of a conversation, at least Mm -hmm. that's how it felt to me than previous live shows because of that proximity. I could look out as we were talking and pretty much make eye contact with like Anselm, who I had a good conversation with before the show, or people like Chris and Lisa, who I know from trivia spotting. It's just different when you can see a familiar face as you're talking than, you know, bright lights that are at you and you're just kind of looking out in the darkness. So I think for me, that is definitely what helped make it a special experience too. Yeah, I think you're right. We've loved all of the venues we've done live shows at, but there was something just a little cozier and more intimate about this one. I do think the pent up energy 
was a factor. Almost everybody I talked to, if not everybody, said I had a ticket to the show in June 2020. And I've been looking forward to this for two and a half years. And you heard that explosion of excitement there, even off the top when they were doing the From Brooklyn, this is film spotting and the applause. I didn't think we were going to get to start the show, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, it went on for quite a bit. We also had a little meet and greet there right where we did the show. So you're exactly right. We talked to listeners, hung out for a while, and then got up and did our show. And it kind of felt like we were in everybody's living rooms and we had a blast. If you're new to the show, The Rap Party is the episode we do every year where we pretend that we're done talking about last year's movies a week before Oscar nominations are announced. Yeah. And speaking of those Oscar nominations... We're planning to do something a little bit different. We're going to go from trying to ignore the Oscars to being all in. (laughs) We're going to drop an emergency pod next Tuesday when the nominations are announced. I am looking forward to all of your hottest takes, Josh. Finally, Adam, finally, after you trying to pretend like the Oscars don't exist for Uh so many years on the show, despite the fact that I always watch them. Yeah, we are. We are going completely the different direction. This will be a still processing, not review, but Oscar Mm -hmm. nominations, reaction take. It should be fun. Yeah. So two shows coming next week for our podcast listeners. A couple of quick notes before we head to Brooklyn. Film spotting family members were well represented at the live show. And one of the perks of membership is access to event presales and discounts on shows just like this 2022 wrap party. If you're a film spotting family member, well, for as little as five bucks a month, here's what you'll get monthly bonus shows and access to the full film spotting archive. That includes nearly a thousand episodes going back to 2005. And for the first time, that archive is available via a dedicated feed. So, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, if you're a film spotting family member, that is available to you right there where you get everything else you listen to. This month's bonus show, we're going to record it in just a little bit. Adam, we are doing a best picture winners draft. Our third draft we've done now as a bonus show. Is that right? Yeah, we did A24 here on the show proper, a Spielberg draft for bonus content, and we're going to give it a go again. A great listener suggestion, a Best Picture winner's draft. More information about joining the Film Spotting family is available at filmspottingfamily.com. And I'm going to correct one thing there from our notes. It's not nearly a thousand episodes going back to 2005. Yes, in terms of What we consider our usual episodes, it's just over 900, but with bonus content in there, not only new, but old stuff we used to do for the app and a lot of just extra shows in between. It's like 1,100 or 1,200 episodes you can access if you are a Film Spotting family member. We also want to thank listeners who took the time to give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I say this every week when we call out new reviews here on the show, but I've seen our place in the rankings on Apple Podcasts go up just a little bit every week since people have been rating us. So maybe you can't make it out to a live show. Maybe being a film spotting family member isn't in your budget right now. That's all fine. If you love the show, and we hope you do, one way you can support us is just go to whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Apple and Spotify probably being the two biggest ones. If you can go there and leave us a five-star rating, maybe leave a few comments about why you dig us, it goes a long way. So we want to thank this week, JJ1979, Chai Fern, TN4, Mickey, and I'm going to go with Kleefa. I'm going to say the J is silent, Josh. 
Yeah, I think it usually is in this case, in these anonymous podcast reviews. <laughs> they all left us some great comments over the past week or so, and we encourage you to do that as well. Okay, let's move on to Brooklyn and the 2022 rap party. In addition to sharing our favorite scenes and moments of the movie year with some special guests, and I should watch how I use those two words, scenes and moments interchangeably. Griffin Newman might call me out again, Josh. Listeners will get to that here in a little bit. We're also going to announce the winner of our 14th annual Golden Brick Award. And how about this? There's some massacre theater, and our listeners were spared mercifully this time our terrible acting there's no way it should even be called massacre theater i was in awe at what was happening on the stage and being so close to it you shared on twitter a great photo Mm -hmm. where dana stevens is even closer to the two performers what a moment and just (laughs) just beaming at what was happening on stage that was quite a bit of fun just before we started taping here, I saw a tweet from a longtime listener, Alex Charner, who was there at the meetup. He said, they were wonderful. Their performance took the whole night from memorable to indelible. And I think we will second and third that. All right, let's turn it over to our good friend, Matt Singer from Screen Crush, who was nice enough to play host and introduce the show. Good evening. Everyone's going, wait, did I go to the wrong? That's not Adam. That's not Josh. Good evening. Hello. I'm, hi. I'm Academy Award winning actor George Clooney. Thank, no, my name is Matt Singer, uh, the former co-host of Film Spotting SVU. It would have been so awkward if no one did that, but, uh, and uh, uh, it's my honor to uh, welcome you all to Film Spotting's 2022 Rap Party Live. Yes. Now, this show was originally supposed to happen in the summer of 2020. <laughs> so it only took two and a half years, but we made it. Congrats. Yes. That, I don't know about you, but that to me feels like an accomplishment these days. So, um, yeah, so that original show that was supposed to happen was supposed to be to celebrate the 15th anniversary of film spotting was the original show in 2020, so now it would be like the 18th anniversary, I guess. Has anyone been listening to the show since 2005? Wow, that's awesome. I certainly, I certainly was. I was, that's how I started, was as, as a listener. Is anyone here, was anyone here not alive in 2005? <laughs> Thank God, oh, I was worried, okay. I will. Now that we've staved off that existential crisis, it is my great honor and pleasure to welcome to the stage the hosts of Film Spotting. Put it together. Come on, let's go. Adam Kempinar, Josh Larson. Hello, hello. Thank you very much. This is Adam Kempinar. I'm Josh Larson. We're in a new Hi, everyone. city. Do you recognize the song there, Josh? The song. I, little I LCD sound system from the end of White Noise. That's the Sam Van yeah. Hallgren pick. I like that. Yes, be kind to us, Brooklyn. We're in a new city, so meeting you here, and we're just a couple of rubes from the Midwest, so hopefully we'll, we'll make it through tonight. It is, as Matt said, a long time coming, two and a half years-ish, but we go way back with New York. I think one of the first film spotting meetups that ever happened, maybe not the first, but the second happened here in New York in 2005, 
saw Brick for the first time with seven or eight New York City listeners. That was awesome. Uh, and let's see, I once spent the night in Matt Singer's apartment. He gave me, he gave me his couch. And Sam swears that we once recorded a show in Matt's apartment on the Lower East Side. I would believe that. I don't know which episode it was. We'll have to get to the bottom of that at, uh, at some point. But thank you, everybody, for coming out. We are so excited to finally be here. And we were talking with some listeners, Josh, of course, before the show. Lots of folks traveled a good distance to get folks. here. It's crazy. Atlanta, Seattle. Yeah. And possibly further? I don't know. Those were the we furthest had, we I had heard. St. Louis. We had some Jersey cities. You know, lots of... <laughs> so that was great. I don't know that anyone's going to beat Akil, who came from India. You out there, Akil? Where are you? There he is. Now, in fairness, he, 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 didn't, he didn't come here just for the show. <laughs> he, he had other business. But, but Josh, I heard he extended his stay for the show. Okay. That counts for something, right? Thank right? you. Thank you. Okay, so... If you've been listening even one year, you're familiar with these rap parties, and we like to finally close out the year in cinema with five categories. We're going to go through those categories. We are also going to announce the winner of this year's Golden Brick Award. So we're going to give you the nominees in each category, and then we're going to announce the winner. The first two categories, just the two of us, our last three categories, we're going to have some special guests come up on stage and help us out there. We do have a warning, which is that there, there will be spoilers. Yeah. There almost certainly will be spoilers. It's the end of the year. Hopefully you've had a chance to see these movies, though, Josh, I, I think you maybe picked one scene that the movie just came out. That's fine. Hopefully some folks have had a chance to see it. I did. You did. You gotta go, you, you gotta go with your heart, right? Okay. <laughs> so I'll have to check my notes on that. If we mention a title and you're like, hey, I haven't seen that yet and I can't wait to see it and these guys aren't going to ruin it for me, just plug your ears. It's fine. Just, or, or, or leave. It, it's okay. We will not be offended. So are we ready to get started? I think so. I, okay. I did the full Lydia Tyre backstage. I did, the, <laughs> I did the hand sanitizer. You were very fidgety. Yeah. I, I popped a pill that was someone else's. I don't know what that's going to do. Man. So let's do it. We are Beginning, at the beginning, we're going to give you our favorite opening scene of the year. Josh, you have some titles to nominate. Yeah, we're going to each start with our nominations, go through those before we reveal our final picks. And my first nomination is going to be Athena, or as the characters in the movie say it, Athena. This is the, it's on Netflix, hopefully some of you had a chance to see it, but that seemingly unbroken shot that runs for literally 11 minutes at the beginning of this movie, which is about an uprising uh, against police in a French suburb. So that's my first nomination. After that, I'm going with, and you know, you can applaud our, our nominations. Um, but no, not, because this one I think you'll really want to. I know there are fans out there of Nope. Okay, I didn't know, I tried to stay blind going into Nope, as most of us probably did with a Jordan Peele film had some sense from even the poster what I might be getting stuff out in the sky. And then what do we start with? A bloody chimp on a disheveled sitcom set. And yes, it's like, I, I don't know what I'm in for, but I am in. My last nomination is the aforementioned Lydia Tarr and Tarr. I do like the mysterious mobile phone image mm -hmm. we get and the texting, who is this? Who are they texting to? All that great stuff. Just setting this mystery. But what I love that is what comes right after that, and it is Todd Field's choice to give us the entire 
credits for everyone involved in the film. And I love that because of the thematic importance. Here's a movie about an egomaniacal artist who can only see things through her own lens. And it's going to be a movie that then will start by sharing the credit with everyone involved. I just thought, even before I knew where this was gonna go, that that was a very instructive choice that was made there at the opening of Tar. So those are my nominees for opening scene. Yeah, all three of those are finalists for me as well. And in particular, Tar, I love the boldness of it, the camera phone image, as you mentioned, but then into the complete end credits. And I think it, it functions exactly like Todd Field told the LA Times in an interview how he intended it to. It's a sort of overture. It cues you in right away to the rhythm of the movie, the pace of it, but he also said he wanted to recalibrate the viewer's expectations about hierarchy, and it certainly does that. I think it's a brilliant bit of subterfuge too, right? Because the next scene is Lydia as conductor talking to Adam Gopnik, equating herself to God, and Field is like, well, here's a thousand names who helped me make this movie, right? So... That was certainly, as I said, a contender for me, but I've got three here to nominate, and this is one we didn't talk about all year on the show until right now because I just had a chance to catch up with it. Also on Netflix, All Quiet on the Western Front. And I'll, I'll call it the, the journey of Heinrich's coat. Thematically, within about five minutes and with no dialogue, the director, Edward Berger, establishes everything this movie is going to reckon with. Another one, this movie made my top 10, Jafar Panahi's No Bears. We, yeah, I love it. Some people have seen No Bears. We observe a conversation between a man and a woman. They're talking about trying to get out of Iran, which we assume is a scene from this movie, No Bears. But then we realize it's actually a movie that's being made within the movie, <laughs> No Bears. And then finally, another reveal that the director, Jafar Panahi is a character within this film, and he's directing this scene remotely. You know, he's kind of in exile out by the border, and he's watching his actors live on a laptop, so introducing all the meta layers of No Bears right, right from that opening scene. And then finally, how much fun did people have out there? Another film or set of films that we didn't talk about on the show this year, caught up with them late, but the opening of Ty West's X. <laughs> Again, two, two features from Ty West, uh, connected films, the prequel to X came out later, Pearl, but it starts at the end, it shows us the grisly aftermath of this porn shoot gone horribly wrong, but my favorite part, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only person, Josh, who had this reaction to it, the opening shot of the, the farmhouse comes from within the barn so that the house is framed by the barn doors, you know, the doors of the barn, that frame. So for the first 20 seconds or so, it's still, and before the camera starts to kind of slowly push forward, it emerges into light. You can be fooled. I was fooled into thinking, oh, maybe we're looking at a film that was actually shot in a different aspect ratio, like an older school aspect ratio, a more of a, you know, one, three, three to one. And if you know going in, it's a period piece and it's about the making of a film, that feels like a clever bit of misdirection by West. It all, it all made perfect sense, but then again, you get the, you get the push in and you realize that he's gonna, he's gonna widen out the frame a little bit. So those are the three I'm contributing to the mix. We've got six great contenders. Yeah, I had a couple conversations about Pearl and X beforehand with some listeners at the meet and greet. It's, it's interesting, it came up, and I think Ty West is a very like formally talented director. And so we were talking about which of those movies, Pearl, which I just saw last week actually for the first time, or X, 
um, was more formally interesting. It makes me think, I think that's what draws us to openings that stand out in this category, mm -hmm. is when there are bold camera choices often and makes you kind of lean in and realize that some choices are being made, a distinct voice is behind this movie. That's for me kind of what I look for in these opening scenes. I think all of our nominations have that. Yeah, and I'll just jump in and say, I think Maxine, the third part of that, what I assume is a trilogy, maybe he intends more, that's supposed to come out, I think, this year. And I think then we'll finally get to maybe put all three of these films on the docket I, yeah. to talk about. That's the other thing we said is like, you almost have to really consider those two as a pair, mm -hmm. really, to get, get your mind around them. Okay, it's winter time. Winter time. My winner is Athena. Athena, the Netflix film. And I'm not going to show all 11 minutes, but we do have some clips that we are the going to The whole show share. is just Athena. We're going to watch it together. I mean, it wouldn't be so bad, but I will show, I think, maybe the first two or so, and what uh, maybe some context for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, again, you'll notice the unbroken shot, as we do meet two of the main characters here. Abdel, played by Dali Bensalah who is a soldier in the French army, and he's going to call for patience and peace in the wake of this apparent police killing of a 13-year-old French Algerian boy. So that's Abdel. And then we're also going to meet Karim, who is played by Sami Sliman. Karim is a charismatic youth leader, and also, we'll learn this later, Abdel's brother. So the movie's gonna begin, or this sequence is gonna begin with Abdel walking out of a police station to give a press conference, there aren't subtitles in this clip. All you really need to know is that Abdel is basically asking for calm when he does speak. Nous venons de quitter le bureau du commissaire Landrieux. Mon frère est décédé à 0h30 cette nuit. Pour l'instant, l'identité des policiers de la vidéo reste inconnue. L'IGPN nous a assuré qu'ils enquêtent de manière approfondie et déterminée. Et qu'une fois identifiés, les coupables seront traduits en justice. Pour la mémoire Didier, pour mon petit frère, je vous demanderai de rester calme. Une marche silencieuse sera organisée demain. Je fais cette demande au nom d'une grande famille de France, une famille qui a porté les couleurs de notre pays. Le grand-père Didier était de ceux que l'on nomme les tirailleurs algériens. Abdel lui-même revient tout juste du Mali, où ses combats lui valent de nombreuses médailles. À la demande de la mère, Ainsi que des frères Didier, une plainte sera déposée dans les prochaines heures auprès de So I was just talking about technique and camera choices and how important that is in the opening. You can clearly see it, but for me, it's not just the technique here that makes this stand out. The flashiness of that unbroken take, it's the way technique serves a purpose thematically. And in this case, it's gonna viscerally connect these two men, as I said, even before we realize that they're brothers, we don't know that at this point, but they're being connected. By, by not cutting with an edit, then they remain tethered in this tangible way. And of course, it is also the astonishing filmmaking that's going on because this scene goes on for another, what, nine minutes or so, includes, without cutting, a car chase that goes all the way from this police station to the housing complex where the rest of the film takes place. And again, it's that connecting it to the personal, to these characters. So it's just not about how cool the camera is. It's what that choice means for the rest of the movie. Yeah, and I don't want to suggest the words there are insignificant, but we didn't give you the subtitles. 
you, you don't really need them, right? Because of the, the technique here and you understand that, that dynamic that's, that's at play. And in terms of a technical achievement, you said it, right? It goes on for nine more minutes. I understand why you chose that part. It's, it's the actual opening of the film, the first moments that we see. But in terms of the, the scale of what we see oh, over the next expands. night, it only keeps yeah. expanding. It gets bigger and bigger and more impressive and honestly more awe-inspiring. You really can't believe that they, that they pulled it off. And I'll say this too, that you know, few, few people, and you can see him right now on screen, Sammy Salman as, as Kareem, few people have looked more badass on screen <laughs> than him in this film. The way that uh, Gravis frames him is just electric. And you know, watching it, I, I think you could wonder if you are supposed to have a little bit of ambivalence about that. Not that they're, they're not the aggrieved party here, they certainly are, but making a violent uprising like this seem cool. But I think you also have to see it as, as fantasy wish fulfillment to some extent, and that these characters are assuming finally a role of authority, and they're calling their own shots. And in this story, in this, this story that they're launching, they're the heroes, right? And that's how they're portrayed. Yeah, yeah, it does feel, and you know, I wrestled with this a little bit, it does feel at times almost like a Hollywood action film. In, in some ways, so I can see what you're saying there, but yeah, the, the intensity of it, it, few Hollywood action films can sustain that as long as this movie does, all the way through the end. Okay, well, we're, we're getting off to a little bit of a bloody start here with our favorite opening scenes. That wasn't planned, but my favorite of all the nominees we mentioned is All Quiet on the Western Front. The, the, you know, this is a, a, a film, an adaptation. We had the 79 movie version. We had the TV version. We had the 1930 American version of the film. I'm pretty sure I watched it in high school and then had to read it in college. And one listener on Facebook, I think it was, who was from Germany said something like, I couldn't watch it. Uh, it just, it feels like homework. I just hear all quiet on the Western front and it feels like homework. And, and I get that. How do, how do you then make that homework and something that's been in the cultural consciousness seem fresh and vital. And that's what Berger does here. He comes out of the gate with two incredible connected sequences. The first, now very familiar to anyone who's seen any number of war movies, especially I'd say, I'd say 1917, but it's not any less harrowing. It's opening on a battlefield. I'm not gonna show this part here, I'm gonna show the second part, but it's a long take, the camera surveying the battlefield, bodies strewn about, and then it goes into the trenches where we see this character, Heinrich. He's terrified, as you would expect, but he's following orders and he does his duty. And he emerges from the trenches and he pushes forward and he attacks the enemy. And just as he sinks an ax into a man's shoulder, we get the opening title. What's really striking, the part I wanna play, is what follows that moment, what follows the title. Henrik is now, we don't see his death, it's assumed. We see his body then piled with all the others on the, on the battlefield. They're all placed in coffins. His journey as a soldier is now over, but a new journey is just beginning. Let's take a look. So I get it, not as intense as Josh's pick for sure, but that's, that's kind of the point here. The, the war machine stops for no man. And actually that next shot that we see in the film of the, the truck going by, the man kind of guarding the, the uniforms from the dead soldiers that have now all been recycled, we see 
the guy who's the hero of the story, Paul Baumer, he's coming to to enlist and the truck is going by him and that that jacket, Heinrich's coat, is going to end up uh, being given to him. And he's actually so young and naive along with his friends, so eager to go off to war, they think this is going to end in no time and they're going to earn their their glory and do do their part for their country. When he sees the the name sewn into the jacket, he actually thinks, oh, this this is for another soldier named Heinrich who might be in the room and he gives it back to them. You know, of course, the the guy's like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. And he just rips it off and drops the, the name tag on the floor. And I, as I said, I think it sets up the whole film beautifully, but, but horribly, again, all without dialogue. And for me, it's just, it's the part of war. We see the first scene, the very opening scene. We've seen that, like I said, a million times. But the part of war we never think about and I never see portrayed is not just the, the logistics and the, you know, the strategy and the tactics of war, but but of bodies and objects that, that do have to be recycled and they have to be reused, just like so many innocent boys we see over the course of this film. Both these films we've mentioned are available on Netflix, and I'm not going to say All Quiet on the Western Front is, is a rousing film. It's, 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 a, it's, it's depressing, perhaps, but definitely a worthwhile watch. Yeah, and it's one, I don't think we have a lot of these, but um, I have not seen yet. It was a bit of a late pick for you, and you mentioned all those other versions. You know what, I'd like to do the completest approach, and mm. I'm thinking, okay, I could try to cram this in this week, but really, i got to go watch the first one. Well, and have you read Remark? I mean, see, this, you start I have there. a lot of work to do, Adam, so okay, you, really, I just, yeah. you really threw one at me here. For the last time tonight, I just wanted to seem smarter than Josh, so... <laughs> I called you I out. I do have a question, though, um, though that electronic or electric yeah, cords, score. mm-hmm. is that used throughout the movie? Because yeah. watching this after you picked it, it was one of the things that of also course. stood out it's as very, a modern... Yeah. yeah, okay. For sure. It's there, yeah. Nice. It's not... I wouldn't say it's constant, no, but, but it's, it's, a, it's employed effectively. Interesting. Yes. Okay. That brings us to our next category, and, man, speaking of depressing... <laughs> I promise the show is going to get livelier and more fun, everybody. But we are going to moving moment. The, the scenes where maybe it got, got a little bit dusty in the yeah. theater or on our couch. And our, I'm looking at mine now that you said depressing. And I, I think some of these are... You did okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't think these are too depressing. We'll see. You guys can decide. All right, my first nominee, a movie we both loved, obviously, After Yang from Koganada. Okay, here's where we're going to kind of get into spoilers. If you haven't seen After Yang, you have many problems. So I'm not worried about spoiling it for you. But those final moments where Mika sits with her father, played by Colin Farrell on the couch, and then he just asks her, want to sit beside me? Just, you know, a simple question, but we know at that point what that means for him to ask it and how it's mirrored with her in a similar shot with Yang earlier in the film. Just beautiful. Um, a lot of people in talking to some of you beforehand were hoping we would bring up quite frequently Banshees of In Sharon. So here it is, a moving moment. I have it in the moving moment nomination category, more Colin Farrell as well, when he's talking to his sister who's objecting to an animal in the house with, I'm not putting my donkey out when I'm sad. <laughs> As you can see, also could have been a funniest moment, right? But I think much of the film works that way. Every line could be a funniest moment or a moving moment. My last nomination is for a film that I hope a fair amount of you saw. There's been not a lot of talk about it, even though it's from a very respected filmmaker, Hirokazu Koreeda. Broker? Okay. 
For me, I picked to nominate the moment where uh, Corrieta's makeshift family in this film, they share one last night together. Good stuff. So I would say about Banshees, you're right, that, and we're going to discover this further in a moment when we get to another category. You, you, you mentioned it, though. Every line in that movie that comes out of Colin Farrell's mouth could either be a moving moment or a funniest moment. They're, they're either heartbreaking or hilarious or both at the same time. And it's such, that one in particular, the donkey line, is so childish and defiant. That's what I love about it. It's like he's, he's, he's trying to retain whatever dignity he can and push back just like a little kid would, no matter how ridiculous it sounds. Except the thing about Farrell, what he pulls off there is he completely means it. It oh, is, yeah. it is yeah. so earnest. It might be the first moment that, um, and I can never get the name right, Pejric, how, how they pronounce it, but Farrell's character. Um, Porridge, yeah, it sounds They say a it more bit. like Parrot, yeah. Parrot. Parrot. Anyway, now that I've derailed us. I think this may be the first moment that he almost admits what he's feeling. You know, mm. like he expresses that, um, yes, I, I'm actually going through something here, and if you take my donkey away, I might not make it. <laughs> so this is going to be the first of many mentions this evening of the movie that was our number one film of the year, After Sun. And you could just pretty much put the whole film in this category, right? But the, the one for me is one we talked about quite a bit on the show when we reviewed it. It's the line that Sophie, the, the daughter, her character has when she says, don't you ever feel like you're sinking? It's a much longer scene, but it, it, it's a moment where she essentially articulates something that sounds an awful lot like depression. And you see her father, you see Paul Meskel's Callum in the bathroom, the way he's responding to it, as subtle as it is, it, it's something clearly he's very familiar with. And um, there's a punctuation to that scene, actually him spitting in the mirror at himself, some, some health, self-hate, some self-loathing there that, that comes in. But I think it's the first or second day of their vacation on this, this trip in, in Turkey, and she just expresses a weariness that you don't necessarily expect, like an 11-year-old. To yeah. say, and you, you see that effect that it has on, on her dad. Uh, another one, how about a movie that we did nominate for our Golden Brick? How many people saw Bad Axe, the documentary? David Siv's film chronicling his Asian American family struggle to keep their restaurant afloat. They're navigating COVID, they're in a very conservative, small Michigan town, Bad Axe. And the, the moment that stands out for me is one near the end. I'll just call it Jacqueline's announcement. His, his sister, who's kind of the, the whole, she's the energy that pushes that whole film forward. The, the emotion, the energy, also her activism carries the film in a lot of ways. And she has this announcement that comes near the end that is just a moment of pure elation for the entire family. And it, it really did choke me up quite a bit. This is another ending I'm not going to say much about. The eternal daughter. The, the birthday cake scene. Tilda Swinton, we get two Tildas for the price of one. Tilda as daughter delivering a birthday cake to Tilda as mother. I'm gonna leave it there. Hit the Road is a film that comes to us from, wonderful, from Jafar Panahi's son, Panah Panahi, who uh, was also a Golden Brick contender this year. And there's two, there's two great options here, the father and son, heart to heart by a stream, that happens, long take, just extended conversation where you get the sense that maybe they haven't talked like that, that openly, that vulnerably uh, to each other in a long time. I'm gonna make up a word there. But the, the other one I'm, I'm gonna focus on is the where are you taking my child? And uh, we may have a little bit more on that in a second, but it's a, it's a, a mother, 
father and a young son meeting a man on a motorbike. The family is paid to help the oldest son flee. I'll, I'll say that. It's a goodbye, and, and due to the illicit nature of this entire arrangement, everything about it is fraught with tension because there's so much uncertainty, right? Finally, I, I wonder how many people did see this film. Another one I caught up with at the end of the year, I think a lot more eyes need to be on it. It's the documentary Last Flight Home. Okay, we got one. Did you, did you like it? You win, sir. <laughs> so this is Andi Timoner, and she is chronicling her father's final days and the process of him ending his life via assisted suicide. And in this scene, it's, it's Andi and her sister, Rachel, who's a rabbi, and I actually just looked this up yesterday, what a coincidence. She's a rabbi, her congregation is about a mile away from where we're at right now in, in Park Slope. But Eli, the father, over the course of this film, you get the sense that he's, he seems like the ultimate mensch. He just seems like the perfect businessman, husband, father, unimpeachable in so many ways, of course, though, imperfect, imperfect very much in his own eyes. And part of this process, more as rabbi than daughter, Rachel says, I'm calling it Eli's confession, but it's not really a confession, but she is giving a, him a chance to kind of unburden himself, to say things that he regrets, things that maybe he feels shame about, and this is part of that, that process as he's, he's getting ready to, they have to wait a certain amount of time due to the, the way the law is written before he can finally go. And there's, there's really some heartbreaking shame in the things that he exposes that, that move me. And then, I know this film's really divisive, but the ending of The Whale <laughs> kind of knocked me out as well, and I gotta, I gotta throw it in here because I have to, I have to acknowledge I have to acknowledge how I felt in that moment where actually you were sitting two seats away from me and I'm like, Josh can't see me cry. I'm not, I'm not ready. We've been doing the show like 12 years, but he can't see me cry. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold this in. And with all of those, we're ready to announce our winners. What do you got? This was probably the toughest category to pick among for me after Yang, Banshees and Broker, but I did end up going with Broker. And... It's really worth catching up if you haven't with this one. As I said, this is the final time that this uh, makeshift family is going to be together. They're made up of basically a young single mother, the baby that she intends to sell, and then the two brokers who are arranging the deal. They've also, I won't get into the details, but picked up an orphan along the way. So there's this, you know, kind of strange group. They're all um, squished into a hotel room. And the broker, played by Song Kang-ho, the great Song Kang-ho, tells the mother, who's played by Lee Ji-yoon, that you know, before she sells this baby, she should say something to him. She has been talking, she's been caring for him, but not really talking to him that much, and he's noticed that. And so he jokingly suggests a phrase that she should use. And then she does decide to use it, and a moment that starts out kind of funny turns into a, a blessing for all of them. 자, 시작합니다. Tayonajo 
태영이도 태어나줘서 고마워. Josh might get to see me cry after all. <laughs> so yeah, I, I first showed a scene that was all about the camera, and then this one's half in the dark. But I don't know what. I guess that's what needed to happen for this for this moment. And it's worth noting the pause that she takes um, on the last time she says it. It's because the who she names after that is her own child. So you could you know just that that's a sort of example of what. Um, Creator can be something that could turn very blatantly sentimental by just making a subtle but significant touch can can add it just the right bit of sentimentality at least at least for me I think that's why he has such deft handling of incredibly moving material yeah I mean who who handles sentimentality better than Coreda about Coreda I looked Josh at one of our previous live shows I think our last one that we were able to do live with an audience the 2018 rap party I had a scene from shoplifters as my runner up for moving moment we might just have to put Coreda yeah. in like the, the rap party penalty box at least for this category because anytime he makes a movie it, it could go in and this is the one I was referencing earlier that is in theaters right now so I looked it up and if anyone is curious Prospect Park here in Brooklyn at the Alamo in lower Manhattan you can see it Nice. If you want to check it out. Okay. There you go. So we're going to go to my choice, and it is one of those two scenes. It's where are you taking my child from hit the road. And it, you know, any movie, any, any scene that we're going to show you, they, they require context to really be effective. But I, I'll admit that this one, maybe watching it for the first time, may not seem overly upsetting. And I think part of that is the technical decision Panahi's choice to shoot it in one long shot, very distant from the characters. And the whole thing plays out in one scene. It's about five minutes long. And we're going to watch just a, a minute of it or so here from the tail end if Tom and Sam have it queued up. Again, the the context of the scene: this this oldest son being taken away on on the motorcycle and. It makes me think about just this past week or so. I came back from a long trip with my son Holden, who's overseas. He's studying abroad. And we had to say goodbye to him at the airport when we knew he was going. We knew we were going to see him in two months, right? And then we wouldn't for another six or seven months, but we were going to see him. That was hard enough, right? And, and then we just we, we took him back to study abroad and we had to say goodbye to him again. And that was incredibly hard. As a parent, you worry constantly, at least I do. And he's just at college. And we can be in communication with each other whenever we, we want to be. I can't fathom, I really can't fathom the weight of this type of goodbye. The fear, the anxiety, the helplessness. I mean, thank God Panahi shoots it the way he does, where we, we don't have to be in the middle of it. I, I needed the distance. The intimacy of it is, is too much without actually being right there. And a couple moments in particular that I wanted to, to 
make sure we watch the the mother's wait when she says wait and stops the bike and he needs his coat how, how many times have you done that with with any situation right with a kid or anyone anything else where you're trying to just stave off the inevitable and you will come up with any excuse to just pause it for 10 more seconds or one more minute and the younger brother too i mean that's kind of the the beauty of this film is this incredibly uh, moving and harrowing scene is playing out and they've got the little the youngest son chained to the tree like he's tied up at the tree and they do that deliberately when he says where are they taking bro i mean they're they're doing it because they don't want him to suffer through this they don't want him completely to know what is happening with their older brother they with his older brother they haven't told him that and and it's it's essentially what panahi does with the audience just with more separation you know he actually puts him uh, in the corner of the frame and 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 makes him just kind of hear what's playing out but not have to really process the real terror of it yeah and the emotional distance we need as viewers i think you're right that's one reason possibly for the choice of doing it in a long shot like that it strikes me watching it again though so much of this movie prior to this has been the four of them squished in the family car right Mm -hmm. with the dog as well and we've come to know them intimately in that space and their togetherness And so it emphasizes by doing the opposite here in the climactic final moment, pulling away further back, seeing them being separated against this vast landscape. It's the opposition that makes it so affecting Mm -hmm. as well. Okay, now to the fun stuff. And and in fact, the funny stuff here. We're gonna share the, the movie or the movie scene that made us laugh the most this year, Josh, your contenders. I actually have four nominees. There are so many great options. So uh, let's start with Barbarian. The <laughs> Maybe, I mean, even having seen Pearl, yeah, Barbarian's the most bonkers horror film from last year, I think. I mean, Pearl gives it a run for its money, but I know we're not worrying too much about spoilers. This is one kind of, if anyone here has not seen it, I don't want to give everything away. So I'll just say my nomination is Justin Long and his measuring tape. Yeah, they'll know. That's, okay. uh, we'll leave that there. Everything Everywhere All at Once, so many options from this one. I've got to go with Rakakuni. I think RRR, we used to do an action category, we didn't did. we, Adam, yes. years ago? Uh-huh. And so, man, that, that would have been great to have this for RRR, but I probably laughed the hardest, and I laughed a lot during that movie, but the underwater, I forget if it's a high five or if it's one of those manly, like, kind of shakes, but they do that underwater. <laughs> Just bless. Um, Triangle of Sadness is Captain's Dinner. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just going to confess, I which, laughed. Which parts, Josh? I laughed. I, la- I gagged. I took a pause from laughing and gagged. And then I went back to laughing. So it had to be a nominee. <laughs> I am only here to praise movies. It's the rap party. I'll just say the captain's dinner really just made me gag. That was it. I didn't, I didn't get any laughs out, of the, the laughs out of the captain's dinner. Sorry. But you're going to go with Rakakuni. I'm, I'm going to go everything, everywhere, all at once and, and one-up you with three words. I'm going to raise you butt-plug battle. I know, I know all of you have longed to hear me say those three words on the show. It only took almost 18 years and, and you got it. But I, I don't think I've ever been more cognizant of the, the physics of a fight scene, the actual physicality of it, the angles. The word the you're t- looking for, Adam, is stakes. Stakes. You're right. You're right, actually. I mean, 
they've never been higher, Josh. The the torque on the body, I, I was paying attention to all of it like a scientist. So that's my that's my nominee. Here's here's my Banshees I'm in a Sharon line. But you liked me yesterday. And and I'll I'll, I'll reverse it, right? This one is is heartbreaking and, and utterly hilarious. Yours is maybe, depending how you see it, the the opposite. Okay, the I probably just can say the title of this film and most people in the crowd can repeat back to me the line I'm gonna go with. Though there are many funny moments in Ryan Johnson's latest Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, but it is Jessica Henwick to Kate Hudson's Birdie J. Please tell me you did not think sweatshops are where they make sweatpants. Which just so perfectly sums up that character's callousness and willful ignorance. Okay, a movie I just caught up with. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And a few different people on social media, Josh, suggested the the podcast bit. Of course. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I'm going to say, part of that did crack me up. Mayala Harold is Jordan. And there's, there's a groan she makes. I think she does it twice. When, when Rachel Sennett's podcast gets brought up, she groans and she pulls it off as if it's completely involuntary. Like, she just can't help it. it it's the visceral. visceral reaction she has when she hears about her friend's podcast. She groans. But, but it's actually another Herald delivery right after that. That's my, my nominee. And I'm going to see if the audience can get it. Right, we've got fans of this film out there, right? Okay. So... It's, it's, I'm going to give you, there's four lines. I'm going to hold off on the last line, which is two words. And it follows the moment where Rachel Sennett's character has called Jordan out for acting like she's a rags-to-riches story and that she doesn't come from money. And so it's, it's Sennett, Herald response, Sennett, and then finally the Herald response. And, and again, I, my guess is that someone in the audience knows it. So if you do, shout it out. Sennett says, your parents are upper class. Jordan says, Harold says, no, they're not. She says, yes, they are. They are university professors. <laughs> Does anyone know the next two words? Public. It's public. <laughs> she says just so adamantly and, and clearly, it's public. <laughs> Cracked me up. But my last nominee here is Marcel Shell with shoes on. And I'm... I'm just, I'm going to say four words here. Peace. Yeah, obviously peace. <laughs> so, a lot of, lot of good contenders. You've heard the reactions there, Josh, and we'll see if they appreciate our choices. What is your funniest scene of the year? My winner is my new favorite Disney character, Rakakuni. <laughs> let's, let's watch some Rakakuni. Oh, actually, you know what? I realized, let's, let's go ahead and have a seat, Josh. You know what? We have to do a little on-air on live producing here. I realized that... Did we forget Griffin? I, we didn't forget. I was just doing it out of order. I was doing it out of order before we get to... Now, we've lost all the suspense. I'm sorry, Josh. But we have more suspense to build because we do have a special guest to bring out here on stage at the Bell House. Couldn't be more excited to have none other than co-host of the Blank Check podcast with David Sims. He can currently be heard, if not seen, in Disney's Disenchanted as Pip the Chipmunk. And Blank Check, great show, a lot of good stuff in 2022, including looks at the work of Sam Raimi and Jane Campion. Griffin Newman is here. 
All right. I am so sorry. No, it's fine. I stepped on your toes, sir. Look, I'm not uh, trying to start a fight here. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have no objections to the fact that you guys uh, uh, took some time to build up excitement until you brought me out. That's right. Uh, Here's the one thing I have an objection with that I'm working through in real time right now. Oh, no. In the emails about this show, Uh I was told my assignment was to come up with funniest scene. That's right. And then I'm looking here and I'm seeing funniest moment. Mm. (laughs) Now, I'd argue they're slightly different things because you guys are throwing out like a thousand moments... That I'm, I'm moments easy. You can ease it. What makes me laugh for one second? Uh-huh. And I was here, and I'm like, when did I have five sustained minutes of laughter? I've been going crazy. You guys are like so many options I, to choose from. I had and no I'm idea. Like, I have you nothing. Were, you were so literal. I was. I, I I've been really uh, burning the midnight oil trying to figure this one out. I will say, I prepared. What's your funniest scene? I prepared scene answers. If I can play your game for a second. Uh Okay, please do. I think funniest isolated moment of 2022 for me, I'd say is a shot and is almost a facial expression. It is uh, in turning red, uh, the panda going horny-eyed outside the window (laughs) of the convenience store. I think that's the funniest individual moment in a movie. But then I was- Do you feel better? I feel a little better. I got that off my chest. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I did remember my list because I was thinking like in in terms of a scene, like what is a scene where the construct of the scene itself is Mm -hmm. so well set up that I am laughing the entire time. And, uh, you know, we we get less comedies these days, especially uh, made by studios, especially put in theaters. And I found uh, all the comedies I watched on streaming, it was hard to think of them as qualifiers for this because you're losing the aspect of actually having the experience of sitting in a room with people and hearing the sure. laughter and that becoming infectious and one everything. Of the, one of the reasons, real quick, why Banshees is, I think, so high on our yeah. list. We saw that Chicago Film Fest, right. Packed, crowded Packed theater. house, yep. and everybody was cracking up at yes. every line. Um, now, now, Sam, the great Sam Van Hollgren asked me for my, uh, my options so he could pull up a clip, and it was really weird because I emailed him and I said, well, my choice for funniest scene of the year is uh, Pip turns into Cat Pip in Disenchanted. Uh-huh. And the email bounced back. Uh-huh. I got like a mailer daemon alert. I right. said it like six times. My account got is. locked. Uh-huh. But in lieu of that... Instead of nominees, Griffin brought qualifiers. I brought qualifiers. <laughs> um, the, the prayer scene in Fablemans, the sort of first date Jesus prayer is sexy. scene. Oh, Jesus yes. is sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in, in Funny Pages, one of my favorite movies of the year, an underseen sort of a golden brick adjacent film, uh, the, the basement apartment tour when he's looking at the place he's going to move into for the first time mm. is such an incredible sustained escalation of that feeling of being a young person and being so excited that you finally now get to live a shitty life on your own. <laughs> and the romanticism of like, this is the kind of awful right. apartment people talk about when they're older that they had to suffer through. Except it's beyond anyone's It's the worst, worst apartment I've ever seen and he oh. is like in love. He's so <laughs> wide-eyed. He's thinking yep. about all the things he's going to write about this apartment someday. Uh, a friend of film spotting, not a friend of mine because I've never met him, uh, but, but uh, David Wayne's character in the Bob's Burgers movie has a song that I will not ruin at all because it is basically set in plot points, but it is the funniest musical number of the year. Uh, you called out Justin Long and Barbarian. I think the first cut to Justin Long oh, yeah. singing... Yeah. 
in his car is incredible. But my pick, which uh, as Sam could not get a clip from because I've been told that the movie is now illegal and I will be arrested for even picking this right. during a film spotting uh, show, uh, the first day of sound from Babylon for me is hands down the hardest I laughed at anything last year. I, I was as surprised as anyone that I not only enjoyed that movie, but was so over the moon of that sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it, it is uh, you basically had this extended set piece of watching how films were made in the silent era where they have this giant desert with 18 different sets running simultaneously and everyone's screaming and throwing things at each other. And none of it matters because they don't have sound and it's like a back and all. And then the jazz singer comes out, everything changes, and there's a hard cut to a title card, first day of sound. And we go to this sequence where Margot Robbie's character is trying to shoot a very simple scene where she walks into a room, drops a briefcase, and goes like, wow, college, or something like <laughs> right. that. Hello, college, or something? Yes, yeah. hello, college, yeah. yes. Uh, and it is the most laborious, <laughs> tedious process in the world. Now that you've added sound, all the fun is gone out of movies and movie making. And as someone who uh, spent the better part of a decade acting in some of the worst films ever made on camera and horribly run productions, I finally felt like, oh, there is something, there is a scene I can point to that embodies the anxiety I feel every time I'm on a set of just trying to get one take where nothing goes wrong. And every time a different person something up, excuse my language, drops the ball in some way, coughs, whatever it is, and the scene just builds and builds and builds and builds to like an unbelievable punchline. Yeah, it's, it's more anxiety-inducing that scene than Athena, I think, Correct. maybe. Honestly, it is. It's, it's the most just... stressful thing I've ever seen. Yeah. But also, how about the payoff dark gag yes. of yeah. the technician, I forget if he's a sound guy or someone in Cameraman. a booth yes. where that is hot and they won't let him out. They, We're spoiling they this. They have to put the camera in a, a sound airless sound booth yes. the camera's too loud and every and time they take, cut he yeah. opens the door to get some air and, and he's says like, I'm, I'm having a heart attack here. right and they say get back in the box yes and you know what's coming and but it's it gets pretty dark yeah yeah I, I was gonna ask you and I guess now I am asking you if mm. there was one moment you can leave out names to protect sure. the guilty if you want but have you had a moment that bad on set? I mean, what what would it be where you were just, oh, it, you I, just I, kept going wrong? I had. I mean, uh, you know, I, I spent I, most of my my twenties. I was a working actor, and then I uh, about four or five years ago uh, kind of hit a wall and took a break. And the longer that break went on, the harder it was to identify why I wanted to take that break. Like, why did you just start doing uh, voiceovers and uh, podcasts and things where you don't have to exist as a physical being in front of other people? (laughs) And I was like, I can't remember why I was so stressed out by doing all of this. And I did a movie a couple months ago that was my first thing I'd done in a couple years, right before I saw Babylon. And there was a scene in that in which a conversation escalates into an attack and guys had to hold me back. And there's an extended fight that happens and then it ends with them knocking me down and me hitting the ground and, and being knocked out. And so it was this super complicated, like you have to go from dialogue to choreography to this and that, but it all has to end in uh, hitting a pad, right? There's like a stunt pad set up on the ground to fall backwards into. 
and the tediousness of the challenge, and it was just take after take after take of going, let's simplify the scene. Let's simplify, Griffin's not getting it. Let's simplify it, let's simplify it. <laughs> let's only, okay, now we're changing it. Now we want it to be a one but now it's just this one shot, whatever it is, and you do it, and they go, well, you can tell that you're bracing yourself for the fall. And then you do it without bracing yourself, and they go, well, but if you just fall normally, it actually doesn't read on camera, so you have to wave your arms around like this. <laughs> and then you do that, and they go, the arms were too big, too you're big, waving them course. too much. <laughs> yeah. You went too soon, you went too late, you went too hard, you went too light. And it's the night before, it's the last night of filming before Thanksgiving. So everyone is like, I want to go and get on a plane and oh go God. see my family. And we have another two pages to do after this. <laughs> and it's just an hour and a half of figuring out how to hit this incredibly narrow strike zone. So you were the opposite of Margot Robbie in that scene. I was Who's bad. A pro? She was a like, pro. No, I was bad it. at everything. Yeah. There's a reason I retired. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, I did want to ask you mm. to reflect on 2022. You can sure. give us one or both, either your favorite movie going experience of the year. Or not, you know, maybe different than movie watching the yeah. overall movie going experience, and then give us maybe a uh, a professional highlight. What stands out from the year? Uh, it, it was it, it, doing Disenchanted, which I think last I checked is the best reviewed movie of 2022. I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Checks out. I didn't read a single bad review. Well, Josh hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Um, but that was just incredibly. Don't go to Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Oh no no no. no. A hundred, right? A hundred? Yeah. Um, no, as like a, a film dork, anytime I get to do a thing that feels like a checklisty thing of, of doing a thing that feels so like uh, show busy in Hollywood of like, not experientially, but just like, oh, I was like a talking animal sidekick in a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those things that you can like describe to people and they're like, really? They let you do that? <laughs> that was a job? Uh, and it was an incredibly fun thing to do. But also very weird to like be part of this movie and never meet anybody. <laughs> to just like wow. stand in a closet and be like, yeah, no, I act with Amy Adams. She doesn't know. It's like a one-way mirror. <laughs> I'm looking at her and I'm saying things in response to her. Um, but that was, that was really, really fun. In terms of best movie-going moment. I mean, Barbarian is one of those movies that was unbelievable to watch with a crowd and just not... To have no one know where it was going... I think the most impressive thing about that movie is that they successfully sold it and made it a hit and like the last weekend of August, like Dead Zone, by basically putting out a trailer and poster that were like, we're not going to tell you anything and you shouldn't look it up. <laughs> like the, the actual formal marketing campaign for that movie was, you shouldn't know anything. And, and it seemed it, like an old-fashioned word-of-mouth experience, and it too, worked. right? Yeah. But, yeah, and it was kind of great to go see that like Times Square opening weekend and just have that feeling and the energy of any time. Every 10 minutes, you'd feel the audience go, like, what, what is this now? Yeah. And I do think just that, that first cut to Justin Long, for those who have seen it, it's like the movie has finally kind of, like, the tension has released. It's built to the fear pitch. The horror that you know is coming finally hits. And then you hard cut out of that to Justin Long driving in a sports car. <laughs> If this was still the day of film reels, you would think they put the wrong reel. Truly. You, I'm right? watching the wrong movie. This guy yes. wasn't in this film. This is a Did different tumor, a different space. Where are we? How does this possibly connect to what I was watching? And, and that was, you know, it's the thing I think you miss uh, about seeing things in theaters, which I always try to do when I can and miss so greatly during the, the worst of lockdown, is, you know, it's, it's fun to see 
people cheer when Captain America catches the hammer, or people laugh at a big comedy or any of those things. But there are these sort of intangible things that you can feel, like the, the type of silence in a crowd, you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, the, the, silence. the weird sort of uncomfortable laughter of a moment uh, like that, where the entire audience is on the same page and knowing we don't know what page we're on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Griffin, please accept my apologies for apologies. almost skipping you, <laughs> you and for not being clearer in my directions. But hey, I love the scene you We're built. doing great. Thank you okay, very much. Griffin Newman, Thanks, everybody. Griffin. Now, see, Josh, if, if I hadn't just said that, then we could have just pretended like I didn't make a mistake. Magic of editing. I'd say, Josh, what's your... What's your pick? What's your funniest moment now that we've heard Griffin's? And Sam would edit it in and everything would be perfect. Did you just do all that so he could still do that? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I'd like to give Sam options. Yeah. So I, I can't wait to hear, Josh. What's your favorite funny Anybody moment Anybody have year? a guess? Um, I think we can still watch a little Rack of Cooney, Yeah, let's right? do it. Let's do it. Okay. It wasn't until I was looking at the scene for the show that I caught he actually said she's seen too much. Uh-huh. And it's just like... Well, I, I mean, we're all, we're all thinking it before she says it, right? We, everybody in the theater, we're saying the same word she is. And I, I like, too, that this isn't... It's not just a cameo, but Rakakuni... The Daniels are going to bring Rakakuni back and even find a way to weave it into the emotional undercurrent of the film, right? Which is... Kind of the miracle of this movie for me. So yeah, long live Rakakuni. Yeah, the, the non sequiturs, the homages that, that are just they're unending, they're they're fantastic in that film, but you know what was missing? A butt plug battle. <laughs> just one more time, had to get it in, be another eighteen years before I say it again. Okay. I I might, I I don't know, we'll see. I might be able to top you here, Josh. We'll see the crowd response. The funniest scene of the year for me is Peace, yeah, obviously peace. Marcel the shell with shoes on. Let's watch it. Peace, uh, yeah, obviously peace. Like, what a weird thing to try to test to see if someone else is into. Like, of course I'm into peace. No, sorry, I'm a real war person. No, war, actually. I signed all my personal letters for war. Let the battle begin, Marcel. I mean, every time, every time, I laugh the same. It's the gift that keeps on giving. If Slate had just stopped at peace, yeah, obviously peace, I probably would still be choosing it here, right? I would have definitely laughed at that scene, but then, but then to add on, no, sorry, I'm a real war person. And that, that incredible pronunciation, the emphasis on war, we get it two more times. And with that pronunciation, the voice, the delivery... It, it kills me. And the pure, the innocence, Josh, of the sentiment, too, right? Like, Mar- Marcel's worldview is one in which peace is, is so obvious 
it just blows Marcel's mind that, that someone would actually feel an obligation to express that, that idea, right? Like, it, it, for, for Marcel, that's worthy of kind of gentle derision. It's so crazy. So I just love it. I, I, it's great how it, Marcel even is exasperated by YouTube comments. Right. You think could, could take them with a little bit of grace, but no. Right. Just... And of all things, peace and love, right? Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Okay. So, let's get to our music moments, Josh. We're gonna, it's, it's always, this is always a tough one, especially because sometimes the best music scenes are ones that are also, they can be funny, they can be really emotional, but they can be full of action, a lot, lot of options here. What do you got? All right, so second time I'm gonna be nominating After Yang because that amazing color block opening credits, right? Um, set to Asuka Matsumiya's Welcome to Family of Four, which is just a great song. Um, okay, here we go. Don't worry, darling, Harry's Dance. Those of you... Don't encourage him. I know some of you here still believe in the Victory Project. <laughs> We're having a secret meeting after the show. We'll talk about why this is such a great scene. The rest of you don't get to hear it. God's Creatures, small film, the follow-up film from Golden Brick winner Anna Rose Homer, who co-directed this with Celia Davis. Uh, we talked about this on the show, mm -hmm. Adam, um, a scene where Ashley Franchosi, playing a supporting character but an important one, sings Here I Am, Lord, at the waterfront. Just knocked me out. And second nomination here for me for RRR. What else not to? Yeah, I, some, some good options there. One, maybe not so good. But the others I'm, I'm on board with, and I'm so glad we got After Yang in here because it, it was either here or it could be opening scene. Yeah, we have talked about it quite a bit. Somewhere. I talked about it with Koganata on the show earlier in the year, and he, he mentioned something that I, I looked this up today, and I'm glad I did because are you ready for me to blow your mind, Josh? All right. That happens all the time, but go ahead. Yep. The person who choreographed that dance scene is a director and an actress herself, Celia Rolson Hall. And guess who she also is? She's adult Sophie in After Sun. Interesting. Yeah, it's all coming together. People. Okay. She, she did huh. choreograph that scene and Koganata said they had like two days to put it together. And obviously she did an amazing job and a reference point for it, and I have not seen this film, but I'll throw it out there. He mentioned Koganata that he had seen a Shaw Brothers martial arts film when he was maybe nine or ten that he'd always remembered, and he went back and got it out for this scene. It was called The Kid with a Golden Arm, where they have uh, an opening credit sequence where every martial art member you're going to see the main characters in the film come out and do their specialty dance. And so he was he was mirroring that a little bit with that scene, but it was it was a moment where I think the last line, it's not exactly the opening scene. It's the opening credits, but there's a scene before it at the at the table with that family and the the wife says something about I just wish we were a team again. And Koganata always had in mind that he would 
cut right away to a scene where they they are that they did have moments like that you know as a as a unit and it is a wonderful scene so i mentioned after sun and that's because i wanted to also transition into one of my music moments it is under pressure and i'm i'm not ready to talk about it you, you can't make me, none of, none of our guests can make me. I'm just, I'm not gonna talk about After Sun. I'm not gonna talk about Under Pressure. Okay, I dogged this film, you remember. You, you pushed back on me. I was doing it to try to, you know, goad you a little bit. I dogged and dogged and dogged Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. I didn't want to see it. And then I watched it, and Austin Butler started moving his hips. <laughs> performing Let's Play House, and I was like, I'm in. Happens to the best of us. I, I'm in. I'm in on this film. I'm especially in on this performance. That, that number for me really stands out. Okay, I'm going to go back to Hit the Road for a second. For the folks who've seen it, the opening, this is another opening scene, but it's, it's really a wonder because Josh mentioned the family, for the most part, is, is confined in this car. When the movie opens, they've pulled off on the side of the road. They're kind of taking a break, and the father, whose leg is in a cast, is uh, he's just resting. And we see that young son, the one who's tied to the tree later in the scene I played, he, he is playing kind of with the cast and there's a keyboard, a piano keyboard drawn on the cast. We hear music, it's non-diegetic music that's being imposed on the scene, this piano twinkling, and we watch the son play the piano notes on the cast keyboard. And they're the actual notes. Again, this, that sound isn't emanating from the car, he's not hearing it, but it's this magical moment as if he is hearing it. It sets the table for some magical realism yeah. that will play into Hit the Road. We've mentioned it a few times here, but Pearl. And I, I think the, the go-to one would probably be her audition scene. But for me, for me, it's actually May I Have This Dance. It's when she stops. It's Mia Goth, right? She's this starry-eyed, movie-loving Pearl who rides her bike back from the picture show, she's going back to the farm with her mother and she sees a scarecrow. <laughs> and she decides to dance with that scarecrow and let's say have her way with that scarecrow. It, it could be another funniest line, funniest moment of the year because the culmination, the culmination of that scene, she's been in control the entire time and then she gets mad at the scarecrow and exclaims, I'm married. <laughs> as if she can't believe the nerve of the scarecrow. And it is hilarious, but it also, it really does reveal her, her tortured psyche. <laughs> that whole, whole sequence, you're starting going, Pearl? 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 <laughs> Pearl. Exactly. Oh, Pearl. <laughs> I wonder if your daughters are in the audience. They haven't if seen they, they ever heard, No, but have they ever heard you go down that path? You ever admonish them? With that go voice. for a scarecrow? No. I was not going there, Josh, I promise you. No, they haven't. Okay. My final nominee here is, is this the first? No, it's, we mentioned it during opening scene. So the second mention of Tar, of course, a movie that revolves around music and, and a musician, a lot of options. And I did consider another one that got mentioned a lot on social media for the funniest scene of the year, Apartment for Sale. Her. I get it, the accordion number that she improvises to, to show her anger with the, the neighbors. But it's, it's a smaller moment. It's a much more subtle moment in Tar. It's when we see Lydia, or I should say Linda, watching Leonard Bernstein. She's, she's gone back through that box of old VHS tapes. And this is an actual, of course, 
event. It was a young people's concert back in 1958 called What Does Music Mean? It's all on YouTube. And it's fascinating. It's, it's Leonard Bernstein talking about music. And he has the orchestra play. I think it's Tchaikovsky's fourth, part of his fourth symphony. And he talks about it. And we see him. We hear some of that music. And then we see him explain what it, what it means to him. And it's, it's moving and inspiring because it's Leonard Bernstein, of course, talking so passionately and eloquently about music. But it's also maybe the only time in the film that we really feel like we see inside of this person who's all facade, right? Who's, who's all image. It feels like the real, the real person and that, that smile on her face reliving this, you, you know that she watched this a thousand times, just wore the tape out watching it. And there's an, a nice touch I noticed on rewatch preparing for this, Josh, where the, the scene mostly plays out from behind until we see that close up, it's over her shoulder and we're looking at her looking at the video. And at the end, the final wave the you know stopping the music that that Bernstein does, you can actually see Blanchett's body move with it, and you know without seeing her hand or her arm, you know that she's mimicking, you know just like we mimic the favorite lines from our movies that we watched a million times as a kid, but she knows all the movements right, and she can't it's it's in her it's in her bones to act out that uh, final thrust of the baton. So. Again, a lot of contenders, and this time I'm going to get it right. Before we announce our winners, we have some more special guests. Yes, we do. To bring up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to announce both of them here, and you can applaud for them together. I mean, maybe they, I don't know if they get tired of this or not. We think of them as a unit first. I'll say Matt Singer, editor and critic at Screen Crush. You saw him earlier, obviously. Thanks for the intro, Matt. He is the author of Marvel's Spider-Man, From Amazing to Spectacular, as well as Allison Wilmore, film critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. They were the co-hosts of Film Spotting SVU from 2012 to 2018. It's, it's on indefinite hiatus. It's still out there, though. The shows are there. Their final episode, what a good one. And I can't believe I'm only just now noting the irony of their final show being pop star never stop, never stopping. Because <laughs> they, they did stop. They, they stopped stopping. Matt and Allison, that was episode 167. Please welcome Matt Singer and Allison Wilmer. Matt said he didn't know the irony of that either. <laughs> I don't think we did that on purpose, did we? No, I don't no. think so. We, we, we did no. very few things on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. the, uh, the magic of the show. Okay, so we gave a lot of nominees there. Matt Singer. Yes. Do you have a winner that aligns with one of the ones we threw out, or are you going off I menu? I didn't hear it. I was standing and listening, and I don't nope. think anyone mentioned my, my winner. Shame on, shame on both of you. Okay, well, give it to us. And if you want, like Griffin, to throw out any others you considered, I, I will you say, have I mean, a forum. The, the other scenes that I did consider are about to be... One of them definitely already... Well, actually, I think they both already were mentioned, so I'm not going to spoil any of... Any of that. Okay. But uh, my, I'll just go straight to my winner, which uh, we, we're going to play the clip, right? We so are. I should, I'm going to set gonna it up a little bit. We're going to all vacate the stage simultaneously <laughs> so people can see it. Uh, it's, from a f it's from the film Turning Red. <laughs> so it, it sounds like a lot of people have seen it, but in case you haven't seen it before we show the clip, the, the, the moment that I picked is the climax. I guess this is another spoiler in a sense. Sorry. Um, 
So if you haven't seen the film, it is about this 13-year-old girl who um, has this, she discovers, has this sort of hereditary curse of when she gets angry or excited, any, her emotions get the better of her, she turns into a red panda. And her very protective mother, uh, overbearing, something I in no way relate to whatsoever, um, she insists you must get rid of this panda. And the way to do it is through this ritual that can only take place during an eclipse. Can you imagine trying to pitch this movie? Look how long I have to just set up a clip. <laughs> Anyway, the eclipse happens to be on the same night as the concert of May, the girl's favorite band. Anyone remember the name of the band? How could you forget? Four Town. (laughs) Got some Four Townies in the house. Yes, it is Four Town. And so um, May initially agrees to go along with the ritual, but then at the last minute realizes she doesn't want to get rid of the panda. She likes who she is as the panda, and she sort of resists, and the, the ritual doesn't work, and she gets angry and leaves and goes to the concert. And then her mother, who uh, has successfully previously, years earlier, you know, controlled and contained her panda, her panda gets out. And uh, it leads to this confrontation at the, at the, uh, at the four-town concert where they now have to try to basically uh, contain the pandas one more time. And I guess we'll see what happens there. Does that set it up if you haven't? Sure. Let's do it. I think the way we moved is kind of like Four Town up here. There's four of us. Yeah. Although in Four Town there's five, five yes, guys, which is part of the part of the joke. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I've seen this movie now a bunch of times. My kids really like it, and so you sort of like watch it once as an adult, and then you see it again through their eyes, and like they. So the the, the movie takes place uh, in the early 2000s. So this is sort of like you know. Uh, an in-sync kind of thing, and um, like they have no concept of that. They're seven and five. They were amongst the people who weren't born at that, at that time. And so they don't understand the joke of it. They just think this is a great song. And, and as I listened to, to it with them, I was like, you know what? It is a great song. <laughs> yeah. and, but then, because I have seen it a bunch of times, at a certain point, you actually started listening to the, and looking at the lyrics. And what I realized when I did that was, it's not just, oh, we're kind of playfully doing a boy band song. The words are perfect. Like, should I sing it or should I just say it? A reading from the Gospel of Fortown. That's right. Let's hear it. So, you're never not, you're never not on my mind. Oh my, oh my. I'm never not by your side. Your side, your side. Never gonna let you cry. Oh, cry, don't cry. Never gonna be your ride or die. All right. So, you, when you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But I, I, have a, I have a point. No, I have a point. I have a point besides loving karaoke besides and showing off. You have a new career, is what you have. 
So, you know, it's for town, it's a boy band. You think, well, it's going to be a song that a, a boy or a band of boys would sing to a girl, someone they like. And the words totally work on that level. But they also work for both of the main characters from their perspective. You're never not on my mind. I'm never not by your side. I'm never going to let you cry. I'll never not be your ride or die. Maybe not that one as much if it's the mother. <laughs> but the concept, like, the, the daughter could be singing this to her mother. You're never not on my mind, because she is, because she's always worried about how she's judging her. You know, I'm never, not, I'm never not by your side, because I have to be. I have to constantly go home to be with you to clean and take care of our temple, and, like, uh, I don't want to go out and, and sing karaoke because you'll be mad at me. I'm never going to let you cry. I don't want to disappoint you. I have to be the daughter that you expect me to be, and I'll never not be your ride or die. We're all, we'll always be together. And that... It also works the exact just as well mm -hmm. as the daughter, as the mother singing to the daughter. You're never not on my mind because I'm a, a really intense mother and I'm always thinking about what you're doing. I'm never not by your side because I have to be with you at all. So I just think, like, after watching it about six times, I'm like, wait a minute. This is an amazing musical moment. It's like, it's not just a, a spoof of a boy band. It's not even just a pretty catchy boy band tune. It's like, we found a way to distill the essence of the core relationship of this movie in this silly, fun pop song that we're doing at the key moment where their relationship is sort of being resolved, which I just think is fantastic. So that was why that was my pick. And I also wanted to sing the song on stage because so, I don't think they have it at karaoke. As soon as the show ends, this all becomes karaoke. Matt's going to perform. <laughs> yes. It'll be incredible. How, how do... I was going to say, how do we top that? But Josh, we have a joint winner. And, and that, that scene might just do it. It might top what we just witnessed here on I stage. I mean, just the fact that it's a joint winner that we both True. agree on. Yeah, we had and to independently, agree. independently, we came to our list, had it near the top, yep. so yeah. Said we're going to go with it, and here's what I'm going to tell you. It's not salsa. It's not flamenco. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> saying you should could have worn suspenders and just done the just dance yeah. yeah if we were brave as matt we would have tried actually the truth is adam and i signed up for classes three months ago to do that routine kicked out after three weeks yeah two weeks yeah so we they we were just too bad i don't know what it says about me as a man at this point in my life that watching my boyhood idol pete maverick mitchell executing these intricate, elaborate aerial maneuvers didn't excite me as much as two men executing these intricate terrestrial maneuvers in suspenders. It, it, it blew me away. The sheer athleticism of that 
sequence is insane. Written for the film by the composer and then Kiravani. It's, it's incredible. It, it's one of those things too, if I do remember the film correctly, that's the first real musical moment in the movie. So you're watching it not to not to translating to simply dance dance, of course, as it, as it should. And you're watching all these set pieces, tigers and you know, the underwater, all these scenes, right? And then you get to just this musical number. And, and it's the, I mean, it's part of the bromance trajectory too, right? right. They've, they've embraced, as I've discussed, underwater as action heroes. Yeah. And now they're coming together as dance heroes. No, too. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not only a wonder to behold, but it, it does completely, Josh, to your point, advance the story. It's about these, these men, the, their relationships. It, it ends with one of the two sacrificing for his friend to, to win the challenge. So completely moves everything forward and is also entertaining as hell. And with that, we will move to Allison Wilmore, your choice. Did we, did we do okay with our nominees here or not? Oh, yeah. I mean, you covered many of the, the musical moments I was thinking of. I was trying to come up with one that we haven't mentioned. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly the barbarian scene that has been discussed, uh, yes, is, is in a previous uh, category is an excellent musical moment. Uh, I also wanted to mention Daydream Believer from Women Talking, which, you know... And, you know, that's a movie that feels you just can't place it in time for such a long time because it takes place in this community that is so kind of insular. And then that song, when it's being blasted by the, you know, guy doing the censor, it just feels like it splits the universe the open. monkeys are timeless. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Added bonus, you get Ben Wishaw doing his, like, you know, sad little kind of uh, mm-hmm. rendition towards the end as the music fades out. It's uh, lovely. And, and melancholy, uh, but yeah, for, for my pick, um, I'm gonna make us talk about it after Sun. Oh, how dare yeah. you. Under pressure. <laughs> you had to, I'm, I'm on board. I'm, I'm actually a little mad at, at Charlotte Wells because she may have ruined this song for me forever. In a way, I, I'm just gonna be conditioned forever, I think, that to feel sad whenever it comes on. So do you wanna, actually, do you wanna set it up at all? Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, you know, this is, I guess, the closest thing to a spoiler after Sun could have. It's not really a yeah. movie that I would describe as intensely plot-driven, but you know, it is a movie that is made up of this the memories of and footage, some of the footage that of of this vacation that Sophie, uh, played by Frankie Corio, uh, took with her father, who's played by Paul Meskel, Callum, who's a kind of a young father. And they're at a kind of discount Turkish resorts uh, that he still can't really afford, but is trying so hard. And he is both a very devoted father and also someone who's clearly grappling with, you know, issues personally that he tries to hide from her. And in this climactic moment, uh, we see them kind of after having some kind of splits between them um, coming together on the dance floor. And then it cuts with this scene that has been like spliced into the movie throughout, uh, that it takes place in this kind of limbo where uh, the adult Sophie is in a nightclub and she sees her father who, you know, you kind of get a sense as the movie goes along, uh, she never saw again after that vacation. Um, She sees him and they're the same age and she, uh, you know, finally kind of like like tries to like literally wrestle with this memory and I'm going to try not to cry yeah, when exactly. we watch it. We're all going to try like, not I was to. re-watching the, you know, this sequence this morning, and I was like, I'm going to sob my mascara all over the place on this stage. <laughs> we both picked scenes uh, with parental issues, Allison. Yeah. Yeah. Intense parental issues. Yeah. Yeah. We just picked dudes dancing. So <laughs> We're well-adjusted, apparently. Yeah, that must be it. 
that After Sun in general has an incredible soundtrack. It is this like, yeah, it is this like pitch perfect uh, turn of the millennia collection of like Brit pop hits and like Euro pop ephemera. You know, Greta Gerwig's Barbie may have said no to a certain Aqua song, but there are other Aqua songs and you know, one of them is in After Sun. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, Under Pressure, which is, you know, obviously from before that period is a stone cold classic, but also exactly the kind of song that, you know, would be a sing-along chestnut that they would play to get people on the dance floor at this resort. And the way the movie uses it to kind of tie in this kind of like yearning fantasy of, of, of adult Sophie, like, you know, on the dance floor, being able to see if not really kind of communicate with her father uh, as an adult. And then to have this dance sequence with Paul Meskel doing his like dorkiest dad dances. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, Sophie being at this age just right on the cusp of, of this moment where she would just feel embarrassed by everything, you know, that is like on the cusp of teenagerdom, on the cusp of this whole other stage in life, um, but is still able to get kind of lured in to dance with her father on the dance floor. I think that like using the song, which is like soaring, but also melancholy, and then having it just kind of get hollowed out mm -hmm. as that thing goes along. So you just have the vocals there uh, kind of blending in with the score. It's devastating. Uh, I did want to mention the music supervisor on this film, I think is also the music supervisor on Tar. So she had a really kind of amazing year. Yeah, though, so, you know, this was Charlotte Wells' choice and they apparently like put it in as a temp track, which is what they always say, don't do that because yeah. you're gonna fall in love with it. tried it out, right? Exactly, yeah. and then you're, yeah, you're not gonna be able to afford it, but you know, and this small budget film, they did manage to, uh, you know, talk to two estates of like two, you know, mm -hmm. very <laughs> major singers and got the song. And I think it is absolutely worth it because it does, you know, as you said, Adam, it kind of, this song that you, think you know right. so well, it actually manages to change the context mm -hmm. with which I kind of think of it. Uh, it's, it's an incredible film overall, and I think that that moment just is devastating. Yeah, the, I mean, the music works so perfectly in sync with the movement, the dorky dancing even, the story, the characters, lyrically too, of course, that you, you would watch it and assume Wells had to have had it in mind from the very beginning. And then you do find out that it was something that an editor threw in. She did fall in love with it, spent seven months working with it, and then it was like, oh man, are we gonna be able to get the rights to this? And they, they fortunately did. They talk about it. There's a, a really good interview with Wells on the movie podcast, Rico Galliano talks to her. And one of the stories that Wells recounts is that, you know, lyrically, the, this movie, it's, it's the most on the nose part of a film that's not on the nose at all. This is a film that's very subtle and very enigmatic and mysterious. And it, it's so on the nose that her cinematographer, when, when he watched the scene for the first time said, are you really gonna do this? Like, are you really gonna put in under pressure in this moment? It just seemed to line up too much, kinda one-to-one, -one, but I, I think the movie earns it, certainly earns it. And then the other part is what you mentioned, Allison, which is that Wells transforms the song. I mean, it's one thing to just have a great needle drop, and there's an art to that too, but 
that sound design, dropping out the music you heard just at the end when, when it does, you, you only hear those otherworldly Freddie Mercury and David Bowie vocal tracks, and then it, it starts to merge and, and mix with Oliver Coates' score, and it's the cello that's coming in. It just gives the whole thing what the movie ultimately has, this ethereal and surreal quality to it. And she said on, it, on the, that podcast that she sees that whole sequence as having five distinct parts, like five five acts, and the music is used in a way that marks each one of those, those acts. She even, that moment where the merge happens with the cello, she, she drew on her kitchen table or her grandmother's kitchen table the, a waveform to actually, you know, the exact moment that she wanted that to all come together for her, uh, her production people, and they, they nailed it. I think it's interesting, Alison, you, you hesitated thinking this would be a spoiler because it's emotionally a spoiler, is, is essentially what it is. This was a movie that's a puzzle for much of its early running time. You have a sense of what's going on here, of what both characters are going through. This sequence is when, it, for me at least, all emotionally clicked into place. I think that's what it, this, it spoils, essentially. Yeah, and it's a movie that asks a lot of you in the beginning because, you know, it's so deliberately fragmented. Uh, it, it kind of makes you catch up with what's happening and the kind of relationship between this this memory and and this character as an adult and understanding that it's all being looked back on. And yeah, this is the moment where you kind of, it all clicks into place in a way that is really effective. So we have to say goodbye to you guys, unfortunately, but I, I want real quick a, a movie-going experience that stood out uh, for you this year or a professional moment, Matt Singer. Got anything? Um, a, a, a professional moment? In this context, I will tell you this was very cool. Um, earlier this year, or I guess now last year, at, the, at a, our New York Film Critics Circle Awards, um, we gave our animated feature award to uh, The Mitchells versus The Machines, and the director of the film... I know where you're going. Which I was very happy with. I love that movie. And the director of the film got on the stage at, at Tau where we do the awards and he proceeded to like, most people they come to these awards and they give like an award speech where they're like, you know, I wouldn't be here without, you know, the, the usual stuff. He got up on stage and he started talking about podcasts. And he talked about Allison and I, like, in his, he was like, RIP, film spotting his view. And I was like, <laughs> I, it was like, an, I thought for a second it was some sort of elaborate, like, prank. Right. And he, we were not the only ones he mentioned. And, like, the fact that he, uh, the stuff that we do, or did, and, uh, had an impact on a, a filmmaker that uh, made a great movie, I thought that was a, that was uh, amazing, actually. Yeah. So, I saw it play out on Twitter, obviously, in the aftermath, and it was incredible. Yeah, that was that was very cool. So that was, uh, when you asked about that, that was the one that I thought that Allison. definitely stood out. Well, we've we've talked about RRR enough, but I do feel like that would be the screening. The second time I saw it would be the, the kind of great screening experience I had uh, in the past year, and I, you know, if you haven't seen it with an audience, it is so much fun to see with an audience. Um, professional achievement. Uh, someone was asking me what like my favorite thing that I wrote last year, and I was joking, but then I was like, actually, this is absolutely true. I wrote uh, a piece about Top Gun Maverick that was just about how uh, I thought that Maverick dies in the plane crash, uh, like early on in the, the test flight, and that the rest of the movie is like a death dream he's having. 
while how, he's, how you dare know, you? yeah. How dare like, you? Like, you know, like it just burn, burning to a crisp up the, in the stratosphere. Can't kill Maverick, but yeah, Allison can. Exactly. Um, I was like, someone else, it was Sunny Bunch, I think, published the exact same thing around the exact same time. But but I felt like it was like the, the best way I could get at the kind of weird dreamlike sheen of the rest of that movie in which, you know, Pete Mitchell gets to go back to, like, the place of his finest moment, get to uh, reconcile with the child of his, you know, late partner who also happens to look exactly like him and wear the same outfits and have the same mustache and, uh, you know, he gets to... Plays the same song on piano, don't forget that one. (laughs) That's true. Exactly. And then hook up with the... a passing <laughs> romantic interest uh, mentioned in a single line in the original movie and also fly, you know, an old plane and save the day, et cetera, et cetera. Also, apparently, almost entirely in Magic Hour, I feel like most of that movie, you know, uh, miraculously. Are you, are you I, feel to see the, I feel to see the, uh, the problem here. It all sounds very good <laughs> and very realistic. Yes. So, you know, if it's all just like an incident in Owl Creek Bridge kind of uh, set up, I feel like uh, that actually explains a lot. I think it makes total sense. And yeah, this theory, which is obviously not, I do not have full ownership over, spread across the internet. I think Bill Simmons mentioned it multiple times on multiple podcasts. So, you know, there you go. My finest achievement this, this Well year. done. Met singer Allison Wilmore, everybody. Thank you. Okay, did I, did I promise the show would be done at 10.30 or 10? What did I... Remember when I said I'm going to video this? Uh-huh. I did. Okay. <laughs> well, let's rush on then to announce our Golden Brick winner. For 2022, of note, Sam put a little research in, did some math here. This is the 14th annual Golden Brick Award, and it was the 14th Academy Awards when How Green Was My Valley beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture. So the good news for all the brick runners up this year is that later they're going to be considered the greatest film ever. That's their, that's their consolation. This award goes to our favorite overlooked or underseen film of the year from a new or emerging director, as we like to say. And you're going to run through the finalists for us, Josh. Yes, yeah, six of them here. And we'll start with a movie that's been mentioned a number of times, After Sun. Writer-director Charlotte Wells. Uh, nominee in one of the categories by Adam, the good documentary Bad Axe from director David Sib. Another documentary here, Fire of Love from Sarah Bosa. Then a film that made both of our top tens, right? Mm-hmm. Adam's mentioned it a couple times, Hit the Road from Panah Panahi. Two more here, Nanny from director Nikiaku Jusu. And we're all going to the World's Fair from director Jane Schoenbrunn. So how a winner gets picked, I get a vote, you get a vote, Sam, the Film Spotting podcast family gets a vote. That means even though they stopped producing Film Spotting SVU, they're still part of the podcast family. Matt and Allison get to vote. Everybody from the next picture show, of course, Michael Phillips and Mariah Gates as well, who joined us this year for our top 10 roundtable and did such a great job. And... All of the listeners vote as well. We put all of those numbers together. There's a lot of math involved, Josh, and we come up with a winner. And before we we actually announce the official winner, we have to do the listener vote here. Go ahead and give us the results. Maybe not a shock. Always interesting to see how this shakes out. But among the listeners, After Sun took that poll with 64% of the vote. I'll quickly break down the other titles here. Fire of Love was in second place with 12%. 
closely followed by We're All Going to the World's Fair, 11%. And then Hit the Road, 7%, Nanny, 3%, and Bad X, 2%. I also put it out on Twitter. You only get four options. I took those top four, and After Sun ran away with it there with 58% of the vote. So it, it did crush there in the listener vote. And as we've said earlier, it was our pick for the best film of the year. We agreed on it, first time in a long time here on Film Spotting. And not a shock that After Sun is indeed the Golden Brick winner for 2022. And we're really thrilled to be able to share with you an acceptance speech. Hi, Film Spotting crew. This is Charlotte Wells. I am the writer and director of After Sun. I'm recording this with immense gratitude for naming our film the winner of this year's annual Golden Brick Award. Uh, thanks also to Adam and Josh for selecting the film as your number one picks of the year. We're obviously in pretty fantastic company as far as your consensus choices go. So it means a lot and thank you for championing the film and for such thoughtful coverage, not just of Aftersun, but of all the films that you've discussed on the show this year. Hope you have a great night. Thank you again. How lovely was that? It's really nice. So good. So thank you so much, Charlotte Wells, for that. We're, we're happy to add that film to the list with the past 13 Golden Brick winners. Okay. Every category we've had, we've picked a bunch of great scenes. They could all theoretically be scene of the year contenders, but we do have to pick just one, what we feel is the scene of... 2022. We're going to get to our special guest in a moment and get to our winners. We have some nominees. Josh. All right. My last mention of After Sun, but I would have included Under Pressure here. New Allison was going with it. A scene of the year also could have been the ending. The Father Callum walking from the airport hallway into the club that we saw there with the strobe lights. It's, um, it's the merging of the movie's two worlds in those final moments. From Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, I am nominating the sequence that we both spent a lot of time on in our review of it, Finding Evidence While Editing, uh, with yeah, Sammy going through the footage uh, from their family camping trip. Another nominee, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Final moments at the open window there, and then another nomination from me for Nope, Gowardy's House Massacre. So good. Especially that interspecies fist bump, that moment right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fablemans, I'll say, that, that scene, it's, it's, it's a clash of what should be and could be domestic bliss, right? This night at home, the son's doing some work, the, the father's doing some work, probably, and the mother's playing the piano, and there's a melancholy to the music and the playing, and then the, the distress of that discovery that's, that's taking place. But I love that that it is evidence. He is discovering a certain truth, but it just opens up more difficult questions, only more mystery. For me, there were, there were three quick, I want to mention, monologues that stood out to me this year. One of them is from the film Saint-Omer. It's the end courtroom plea by the defense attorney. The actress is Aurelia Petit, direct address to the camera, which can't believe we haven't done this top five yet in the show's history, but if we were going to do the, the pantheon of courtroom speeches, at least I don't think we've done it, this, this would be not only an instant contender, it might be the, the number one choice. I do really appreciate the screen test, Ana de Armas in Andrew Dominic's Blonde, and one more, one more nod here for Pearl, the, the, end, the end monologue from, from Mia Goth, where Ty West just, he pulls off us 
we're, we're horrified because we, we know what she's already done in that film, and we know what Pearl's going to do because we've seen X already, but in this moment, it, it, it somehow feels like her fate hasn't been sealed. It, it's as if it hasn't happened yet or it's not going to, and we're, we're scared of her, but we're sympathetic at the same time, and that's a tightrope that Mia Goth walks really well. I'm going to give some more love to After Yang, The Mysterious Nature of Tea, because it's Colin Farrell talking about tea. A little bit more love for Babylon. I mentioned this on our top 10 show. Getting the shot. Everything from Manny getting the camera, the film crew, all the extras being corralled into place, Jack, the Brad Pitt character, in his drunken stupor, finally heading onto the ridge for the big kiss. And, you know, actually, we're going we're gonna to talk about this a little bit here more, but the, it's the movie is magic est sequence of, of a year that we saw a lot of that. And I say that because it, it really shows you the total absurdity of the process, how difficult it is to get any of this captured on celluloid and then to actually do it and to pull it off in that moment. At least I felt that way as a viewer. Again, I thought that was, that was the movie is magic moment. Decision to leave from Park Chanuk, retracing, retracing the steps of the crime, the discovery of that. There's, there's really two victims in this scene, right? The, the husband, physically, who's pushed to his death, and then the detective psychologically killed, shattered, as he says at the end of that scene, once he's finally put all these clues together. And the way that Park Chanuk merges, he intercuts the, the footage from the detective as, as if it's all playing out in front of him, as if he's witnessing the actual crime. It's a great sequence in a movie filled with him. I still think Decision to Leave is the best shot and edited film of the year. A lot of love for RRR, all add in the bridge meet cute. That's, that's, uh, you, you referred to the bromance earlier in Ofer Liebregal, a longtime listener in Tel Aviv. That's what he called it on our, Ofer, on our, on our film spotting Facebook page, he called it a, a meet cute, and it is, but it's also, if we were doing the best action scene of the year, that's, that's it for sure, the bridge sequence. And then I'll just give you two words here with Tar, the Juilliard masterclass. The, the scene that generated, the scene that generated the most discourse, both insightful and infuriating, it would be the Juilliard Masterclass. So we've got a lot of good options there, and we're going to get one more into the mix as we bring out Dana Stevens, host, co-host of the Slate Culture Gabfest, of course, the author of Cameraman, Buster Keaton. The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century paperback edition coming here in February. Oh, nice. Starting with a plug. There you go. (laughs) We know some people in the crowd have it. We're getting it signed earlier. Dana, it's so nice to see you again after seeing you at the Music Box earlier uh, or this past year. Yes, it's so great to be here and that this is finally happening. I was on the slate to be at that 2020 show that you never were. happened. So the loop has now closed. Yeah. It's all coming together. <laughs> and that we just touched on our last show that posted uh, this week that so many people wrote in and had Buster Keaton as their most watched actor and director of the year because of your book. Really. I saw that there was, was a whole letterbox wave of, yep. of actor-director, the same photo, and it was very, very satisfying to think that my book was even some small yeah, part of that. It was the inspiration for the marathon, and it was one of the highlights of the movie year for us, for sure. So you have a scene that you're going to nominate as your favorite of the year. 
Yes, my one regret about the scene that I chose, which immediately came to mind, when you assigned me best scene, I was so happy I had best scene because this was immediately the one I wanted to do. Then I almost backed off on it because we weren't able to, I guess the screeners are hyper secure and watermarked and we were not able to I mean, to pull not that scene. I've been pulling scenes illegally from... <laughs> we wouldn't know that, Dana. I mean, we wouldn't know what you're talking <laughs> well, about, Well, whatever Dana. workaround you were using did not work for this particular nope. scene and so we almost Spielberg. backed off from it. Damn you, Spielberg. Yeah. But then we decided, because we're lucky enough to have an actor with us in Griffin Newman tonight, that uh-huh. we would do a Masker Theater version yeah. of... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this was Dana's idea, and it's, it, we think it's brilliant. We'll see how it plays out. We, we do not only have Griffin, uh, but we, we have someone else we're going to bring up. But, Dana, I do want you to set the table yes. a little bit. The, the movie it's from, and give us the context of the scene, and then we'll bring up our actors. All right, so it's a scene from The Fablemans, and it's the scene, one of my favorite movies of the year, and every time I see it or just think about it or hear people talk about it, I've become more convinced that it really is a great movie. Um, But the scene that sent me out thinking, I really need to see this movie again, is this one. And it's the scene very late in the movie. In a way, it's sort of the emotional climax of the film, almost, of this kind of bildungsroman of the young director, the young Spielberg. It's the moment after Sammy Fableman, a.k.a. Steven Spielberg, uh, shows his beach movie at prom, the movie that he's made of his fellow high school seniors at the prom. And afterwards... Oh, and, and so to set up the, the movie a little bit itself, um, it's, a, it's a very Spielberg at his most idealizing sort of um, golden hour movie of the bully who has been pushing him around through the entire second half of the movie being this golden jock, right, and kind of triumphing at all the, all the beach games. The scene after that is the scene that I'm hoping that we will hear reenacted here tonight, which is the confrontation between Sammy Fableman and the bully, whose name is Logan, played by Sam Reckner. Um, I also want to just shout out that Gabriel LaBelle, who plays the young Sammy Fableman, is so good. Really right? good. I mean, everything hangs on that characterization. And if that were, kid were sort of like a boring proxy, you know, if he were just a wide-eyed naïve, the movie would feel so different. Mm-hmm. But he's got some edge. He's really funny. He's just perfectly cast in that role. But not as good yeah. as whoever. No, we're going to see perfect casting is good. <laughs> here, here in a moment. So we're going to bring to the stage along with Griffin. We were doing some casting earlier pre-show, but I didn't. I didn't see you, Jeff. Are you out there? <laughs> Jeff, he's over there. He's ready. We're going to bring to stage Jeff Heimbrock. We're going to bring Griffin Newman. Come on up, guys. Yeah. Okay. Now, Jeff, tell us, uh, are you intimidated? Have you done any acting before? Um, I'm currently uh, on a medical leave, but I go back in two weeks, going back to Wicked on Broadway. (laughs) Tore my hamstring, so I got a nice little six months off, and now I have to go back to work, unfortunately. But fortunately, uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah. So you're not intimidated is what you're saying. Uh, I am intimidated, yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) So, you know, we've seen your Twitter feed, Jeff, and I thought maybe you were the right guy to play this physical specimen that is this character. (laughs) I I auditioned, by the way, to play the bully, and I did not (laughs) make it past the first round. Yeah, straight and jock and bully are not usually adjectives I get thrown my way too often, um, especially in casting, but I'll take it. See, Jewy neurotic film nerd is my first round casting go-to. See what we've done here? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Dana, you you get to play director. You have to give them the action. You guys see where the scene begins, and I believe it is... uh, Just changing into something more comfortable. Yeah, for the sake of the massacre theater. Yeah. You do kick it off, so Dana. Yeah. I love retcon 
counting film spotting into the fable in this universe. Absolutely. <laughs> As it should be. So now a movie about a young Adam Kempinar. <laughs> all right. Are y'all ready? Yeah. yeah. And action. Logan, all I did was uh, to hold the camera and, and uh, it saw what it saw. Bullshit. Fableman, you made me look like, like this golden kind of thing. Yeah? And Claudia, she just kissed me. Mazel tov. In front of the whole school. I treat her shittier than I treat you. And now, I, I, I want to know why you did that. I, I don't know. I, I have my head examined. I don't know. Am I supposed to feel bad now about all the shit we did to you? Do you feel bad about it? That's none of your goddamn business. Because you should feel bad about it, all right? You want that me you to did feel it? like crap. <laughs> I wanted you to be nice to me for five minutes, or, or I did it to make my movie better. I, I, don't, I don't know why. You are... The biggest jerk I've ever met in my entire life. I have a monkey at home that is smarter than you, you dumb anti-Semitic asshole. And I made you look like you can fly. But I can't fly. I can outrun any guy in Santa Clara County and I worked real hard to do that, but you, you make me feel like I'm some kind of failure or, or a phony or I'm like I'm supposed to be a guy that I'm never gonna be, not even in my dreams. And you took that guy, whoever he is, and you put him up there on that screen and told everyone, everyone, that that's me. And that's not me. Jesus, it wasn't supposed to make you Upset. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't mean to freak you out. I didn't mean to... Who cares what you meant? Is something about to happen? You like living dangerously. No, I don't. Me. I really, really don't. Yes, you do. But you tell anybody about me getting upset, that would be a mistake. Our secret, okay? Uh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, unless I make a movie about it. <laughs> Which I'm never going to do. <laughs> and and see. Griffin Newman, Jeff Heimbrock, everybody. Thank you. That was just complimentary. That was with your ticket. You all got to witness that. Never have I, have I been so happy for an overly secure screener. I know, I know. <laughs> happy accidents, yeah, it all works out. So. so yeah, that scene, I mean, it's mysterious, right? The thing about that scene, I think it really crystallizes what I love about the Fablemans, which is that going in, right, I mean, you think it might be a victory lap for Spielberg. He's 75 years old, he can make any movie he wants, he's going to revisit for the first time his childhood and his becoming a filmmaker. It has all the cards in place to be this nostalgia trip, you know, and to be something that's very sentimental and sort of self-back padding. And yet in scenes like that, and in many encounters with the Michelle Williams character, his mother, uh, and just throughout the movie, there, there keeps on being this suggestion that there's a, a dark side to him becoming a filmmaker, that being a master manipulator and being a master filmmaker go hand in hand and are inextricable for him, right? Which is also Spielberg really confronting some of the criticisms that have dogged him throughout his career. The idea that he is incredible at manipulating audiences, at get, wringing tears out of people, and making you feel what he wants you to feel, but 
you know, I have a friend, a very good friend, big cinephile, can't stand Spielberg because she feels boxed in by his movies. You know, like you're mm -hmm. not giving me any freedom. You mm -hmm. know, this is someone, for example, who loves like a Kiarostami movie, you know, a movie that really, or I'm sure After Sun she would love, never mm -hmm. talk to her about it, but a movie that gives you space, space. to make your own choices. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this script by Tony Kushner, who's incredible when he works with Spielberg, right? Like they're a really good filmmaking writing team together really picks up on all of the um, the dark underside of of that gift that he was that he was given. When you're putting it in the context of Spielberg's career, Dana, it's interesting you also describe it as a moment of realization for Sammy, which it absolutely is, what his this power he has, right. what it can do for good and ill. You almost wonder if like just making this scene was Spielberg's realization. Like surely it's something he detected about himself, but if it took this point in his career to actually stage something like this and realize, oh yes, this is right. what I do. Well, something that Kushner and Spielberg talked about, I remember there was a joint interview I read with them somewhere where they said, you know, the, the story conferences, the meetings that they had, which was essentially Spielberg sort of spilling his own tales and Kushner forming them into a story, felt like therapy, you know, that mm -hmm. he should have been lying on a, on a couch while he was doing it. And you really feel that in that mm -hmm. scene, yes. I think. It feels searching and difficult, and like he's looking at something that he's just starting to understand. That's why it's good, because this is maybe the rare Spielberg scene where he doesn't know what it all means, or necessarily what he wants the audience to feel, and there aren't many of those across and his career. And it really surprises you about the bully character, too, right? That he has that insight. Like, so suddenly there's a new side to him that you hadn't seen before. Yeah, I, I mean, the... The part of that that I love the most is when he says, maybe I, he's giving the reasons or he's trying to come up with reasons, feeling threat, and he says, maybe I just wanted to make my film better. And I do think he is, Sammy Fableman is calculating enough as a filmmaker at that time to know what he's doing, but I also think we get the sense from that scene that he doesn't, he doesn't know the full scope. He doesn't, he doesn't have the full sense of the power of that moment, and it's, it's all of those reasons, and maybe none of those reasons. Like, maybe it really was. He just wanted to make the movie better, and, and what, what appeals to me about that is this idea that you're sort of reckoning with the idea that, that you're gonna make, there's gonna be sacrifices and compromises like that as a filmmaker. Like, maybe he did just go with his gut, that it was the most pleasing thing for him to watch on screen. But he must have known, too. I went back and watched the scene before when he's running the projector in the school gym, and he, there's this sense of almost shame about Sam Fableman. Mm. He's looking down. He's not watching the audience's reaction. I think yeah, that's true. There's a sense that he knows that there's something almost insidious about this overly idealized portrait that he's delivering to his arch enemy. You know, it's yeah, just totally. such a no. complex relationship being drawn out there. Yeah. And also, I mean, if I could just pull out the camera a bit to movies this year, mm -hmm. 2022 movies, I wanted to talk about this scene because it seems like it was a big year for filmmakers' disillusionment about filmmaking in that same kind of way. A mixture of the magic of the movies moment you mentioned in relation to Babylon, and as Babylon obviously does, kind of turning that over to look at the you know creepy crawlies <laughs> wiggling underneath, and Armageddon Time did that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you could say that, that uh, Blonde, the, the Marilyn Monroe biopic does that. Even Moon Age Daydream, the, yeah. the Bowie documentary. There's just, there were a lot of looks at fame and celebrity and Hollywood and kind of mass storytelling that were not so idealized, you know? For sure, and if you wanna hear more of Dana's thoughts on this topic, this scene in particular, great post on it, uh, covering some of this material. The movie club, end of year, always one of the highlights oh, yeah, of the movie club. Oh yeah, so great. Yeah, so check that out over at slate.com if you have a chance. We're gonna go to Josh now and get your winner, the scene of the year. We're down to scene of the year for me, and I went, with 
Marcel the Shell with shoes on. I am as surprised as anyone that this movie has connected with people so strongly and for so long. Like, I thought it might be this nice summer, like, pleasant experience in the summer. And no, it's really held on. And even as I'm going back to the first time I saw it, I remember watching and thinking, being surprised at what I was getting from it, but also maybe having some reservations. Like, am I really connecting this strongly with a movie made from YouTube shorts? Um, Maybe it's not as deep or as wise as it seems, and getting tempted to maybe write it off, but then it hits us with this ending, where Marcel does describe one of his favorite spots. So let's watch that. I like to go there a lot because it reminds me that I'm not just one separate piece rattling around in this place, but that I'm part of a whole. And I truly enjoy the sound of myself connected to everything. Best actress, indeed, yes. And, you know, and I obviously agree with that, but it's not just the writing and, and the soulful vocal performance, which I love. Um, it's also the incredible craft of the production design there and the, the lighting, you know, to catch the sun that's coming in and have the window as we move forward block it and then the sun comes back. You know, these are, these are all carefully considered choices that shows you something more is going on here. So... Yeah, that all comes together. It's my scene of the year. I, I think of it as uh, Marcel Deschel's benediction. So maybe we'd all be very lucky if the last thing we hear tonight when we go to sleep is, is that sound. <laughs> well done. Okay, tough act to follow, but part of this whittling down all these great options we've thrown out was easy for me and that I knew it had to come down to two choices. And then I spent about three days worrying about which two. But I knew it had to be either that, that Juilliard scene from Tar or the mysterious nature of T scene from After Yang. Here's why. Both are top five films of the year for me. Each one of them features a lead actor doing some of their greatest work, if not their best work. They're likely our 2022 best actor and best actress at the Oscars, right? Farrell and, and Blanchett and both scenes, one, one really gentle and sweet, the other inherently confrontational, they, they both have the elements of, of ambiguity. Remember I talked about on our top 10 show that, that ambiguity, the mystery we've talked about a little bit here, that, that marked for me the best films of the year. So it, it, it had to be those two. And one of them is the scene of the year if you're looking for the one that taps into the zeitgeist the most, I think. It, it certainly produced the most think pieces and, and hand-rigging, the tar scene, but the other... The other is the only one that has Colin Farrell doing a Werner Herzog impression. There's this part in the film, it's a great part, where the man is explaining to his German friend why it's so difficult for him to describe the taste of tea. He says there's no language for it. There are no words to adequately express the mysterious nature of tea. And his German friend, who's just standing right beside him with a cup of tea says, yes, but I, I imagine things like 
you are walking through a forest and there are leaves on the ground and it just had rained and the rain has stopped and it's damp and you walk and somehow that is all in this tea. I mean, I loved that so much. <laughs> I loved that so much. Somehow that is all in this tea. Somehow that is all in this God, I tea. I watched it over and over again. God, I watched it over and over again. I would like to watch this movie. Well, maybe we can do it together. So that last part actually kind of slays me too. The the request to to watch this movie and the fact that he says maybe we'll do it together and you know this is a flashback and there's no way that happened. Yeah. There's no way that, that happened, place, the, yeah. the regret. But, you know, Josh, you gave me a, a nice, uh, part of a nice Christmas gift. You gave me the book Wonder Boys for Christmas, uh, which I've never read before because I'm, I'm doing some teaching now and I'm, I'm on campus and apparently you think I'm going to turn into Grady Tripp. <laughs> I suppose Just I could trying to warn you. Yeah, you know, I suppose show I could you think the path of, that might be if you make the wrong choices. Think of worse states, but I started reading it here on this trip. Who knew? Good book, everyone. And there's a part early on where Grady is talking about his first creative writing teacher that that said something that he hung on to. And I, I do quickly want to ask, and I'll include writing students in here. How many English majors do we have in the house? <laughs> applause! Come on! All right. We're in, we're in good company, Josh, here. The, the instructor said, at the end of every short story, the reader should feel as if a cloud has been lifted from the face of the moon. Now, I'll bet you know, most people in the room hearing that don't, you can't, you can't really articulate that. You can't, you can't express what that actually means, but I'm, I'm guessing every, at least every English major heard it and said, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. That, that's, that's, that's so honest and so dead on and truthful. And all of the best movies of the year for me, and Fablemans is included, No Bears, Hit the Road, Banshees, Tar, After Sun certainly, they all, they all strove for that. They all strove to, to lift a cloud from the face of the moon. They all kind of lived in this ineffable, ambiguous space. And for me, no scene captured that more longing that sense of looking for meaning in life with all of its complications than, than that scene from After Yang. It just, one of the movies we saw early in the year and has lingered all year long. And I love that it includes, which we talked about in our review, that sort of elliptical editing scheme where we're getting different variations on the same line. And so you know Farrell's giving different performances, but it adds to the mystery and the potential meanings, yes. right? Each time he says it differently, it can mean a different thing, and the movie has space for all of that. Absolutely. Okay, Dana, before we say goodbye for now, uh, a highlight of the movie year for you? Mm. Uh, I was thinking about this when Top Gun Maverick came up, <laughs> that I think my two movie-watching moments of the year, which contrast very nicely, were seeing Top Gun Maverick in a packed theater and just having everyone hoot and holler and squeal and feel that kind of old school movie passion while experiencing something I think really fresh and better than the original Top Gun. I agree. And on the opposite pole of intimacy and, and quiet and sweetness was seeing Marcel the Shell at a press screening, not very crowded at all, next to one of my best friends who happened to be there. I didn't know she would be there. And both of us at that very last scene just walking out, you know, sobbing together. Mm, yeah. 
Well, Dana, go ahead and stay up here with us. Guys, this is, this is our show. We've gotten through all the categories. We've announced the winners. We, we want to say thanks to Andrew Mum and everyone at the Bell House, our house manager tonight, Jessica Steens-Gale, our sound tech, Tom Peters. Give it up for Tom. Great job, Sam. Van Holgren. There is no film spotting without the co-founder of Film Spotting, our producer who is also back there helping out on the tech side, our special guests. A round of applause for Griffin Newman, Matt Singer, Allison Wilmore, and Dana Stevens. That was our 2022 Rap Party live in Brooklyn. If you enjoyed what you heard and you want to see some of the sites, you weren't able to be there, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash filmspotting. I've also shared some pictures over on the Film Spotting Twitter and Instagram. We want to thank again everyone who came out to make it such an incredible night. And hopefully, Josh, it won't be another 18 years before we make it back to New York City. I'm going to say it will not. We haven't done any sort of official postmortem yet, so nothing official, but I would not be surprised at all if we are there much, much, much sooner. I'll tell you right now, I'm half tempted to just say every rap party from here on out will be in New York. That would be a nice tradition. It would be the only problem. That means New York always in January. Yeah, I mean, which was fine. Heck, it was, it, was, fine. it was warmer than Chicago, but, you know, New York in the fall or spring, that's a little more appealing for sure. We might have to mix it up a little bit. If you'd like to be among the first to know about future live events, consider joining the Film Spotting family. More info at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, family members get access to event presales plus monthly bonus shows, and you get the entire Film Spotting Archive, depending on which plan you choose. Again, more information at filmspottingfamily.com. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what is your most anticipated sequel of 2023? Also on the website, show t-shirts and other merch. Just go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in limited release this weekend, you can see Alice Darling, friend stage and intervention for a woman in an abusive relationship. That's with Anna Kendrick. It's also on VOD. My number seven film of the year is out here in Chicago and elsewhere. Jafar Panahi's No Bears, one of my opening scene nominees for the year as well. Turn Every Page, The Adventures of Robert Caro and Robert Gottlieb. I'm actually really excited to see this, Doc Josh, especially after my daughter reaffirmed this weekend, Sophie, the English major, really wants to be an editor. She wants to work at a publishing house. So this might be a good one for us to watch together. When You Finish Saving the World is also out. This is directed by actor Jesse Eisenberg. Julianne Moore stars as Evelyn. Finn Wolfhard is her oblivious son, Ziggy. They seek out replacements for each other. I didn't know that was an option, Josh. <laughs> Hope to look into that. Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game is also playing in a 4K restoration at the Music Box. Next week on the show, even though we still, of course, have the Oscars to contend with, we are going to finally look ahead to 2023 and do the film spotting 2023 movie preview the way we always do it. We're going to give you our top five questions about the movie year. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. 
And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.